0: We, we talked last week in our Lama talk about why we pray some, some of the traditional Jewish prayers and why we do it in Hebrew, and we talked about how Yeshua himself and the early believers prayed within the framework of the Jewish tradition of prayer. Uh, some, of the, some of the prayers that you'll see in the Siddur, the, the prayer book, are the exact same prayers that the Master and uh, the early Yeshua movement prayed. And we see, a great, we, we see a great example of this in Acts chapter 3. I want, I want to take the book of Acts. It's usually Often the book of Acts is viewed as the document that shows how the gospel went from being an intra-Jewish faith, like being an internal Jewish faith, to being the faith that spread amongst the nations. And that's true. That, that, is, a, that is an element of it. But there's also a very strong element where you can only understand it in the original Jewish context. And I'm going to give you an example here. Acts 3 verse 1 says that Peter and John, Kefa and Yochanan, were going up to the temple at the ninth hour. So that would be... Uh, 9 p.m., right? 9 p.m. I guess they worked a really long, hard day and they dragged themselves home and had some supper and then at 9 o'clock they, they went to the temple as the sun was setting. Right? 9 p.m.? Uh, no. How, how do these hours work in their world? Yes, that's right. It was 3 in the afternoon. The hours start from one, And I'm not saying we have to do with this, right? But to understand it, the day Like, the, the hours of the day start at sunrise. And, uh... The, the whole uh, time that the sun is up, from sunrise to sundown, um, there are 12 variable hours. The Hebrew term is a sha'ah zmanit. A sha'ah is a variable hour. So nine of those variable hours in, and uh, you got it. And especially in Saskatchewan, you know, you need that variable hour thing if you want to get it at the right time in the afternoon. Because otherwise, it just doesn't work. So anyway, they were going to the temple at the hour of prayer. Now, we, this, is, this is so cool because it tells us two things. They were devout Jews who would go up to the temple to pray at the time of the afternoon animal sacrifice. And for some reason, they weren't freaking out about it. Like, this was, this was, their theology was okay with this. They weren't there saying, you guys, this is so wrong, this is blasphemy. Don't you know that Yeshua is the ultimate sacrifice? You have to stop. I mean, if, if that was their, their approach, they wouldn't have been going to the temple to pray. I think we could agree on that. But they were going to pray at the time that the Tamid offering, the regular afternoon offering, was being done. So that tells us something very, very important about the early Yeshua movement, uh, their attitude towards the temple and the temple service, um, the way they prayed, that they prayed in that traditional cycle of prayer. And, uh, you know, I, I never knew that when I was growing up. For me, I just understanding that brings it to life for me. And it also helps me be ready for the future when national Israel is going to rebuild the temple. When that happens, I, I don't have to freak out at it. Because Peter and John didn't freak out at it. And if it's, if it's, if it's okay with them, then it's okay with me. <laughs> uh, the first time of prayer is called Shacharit. And that's the morning prayer time. And then... Yeah, at sunrise in the morning or, uh, or until well it kind of varies opinion varies about how long that lasts for maybe until noon at the very latest you could say and then uh, the afternoon prayer time is called Mincha and Mincha literally is a tribute to a king and it's the hour of prayer in Mexico they take a, a siesta right but in ancient Israel they would take a prayer siesta they wouldn't just go and snooze hopefully maybe some of them would but and then, and then there's, a, there's an extra added time of prayer before bed, just, and that's called Ma'ariv, and that's basically in the evening. And that's so. or around sunset? After sunset. Oh, after sunset. Yeah. And uh, the, the, that tradition of praying at those times is based on the offerings that were offered every day in the morning, Shacharit, and then in the afternoon, Mincha, and then the one in the at night, they say, corresponds to when the priests would burn up all the extra fats and stuff on the altar. It's kind of like an extra offering. Yeah. So hopefully that just helps us, helps our understanding of the book of Acts come to life. Uh, chapter, there are some fascinating messianic titles in this passage, and I want to look at a couple of them with you. Because it, it gives us a bigger understanding of who Mashiach is, the role that he came to play in this world and in our lives. Um, 3 verse 5, Peter says, I don't, I don't have silver and gold. But I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Nazarene, walk. And did you notice that he didn't just call him Yeshua the Messiah, he called him Yeshua the Messiah, the Nazarene. And that means, you know, the man from Nazareth. But it took on like these huge proportions in the understandings of the early believers. This term, the Nazarene. Yeshua was the Nazarene. Why was that? Because Nazareth was such a, a big, famous place? Or it was such a, so central in their theology? Well, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, in the Jewish world, if your rabbi hearkens from a specific town, then you'll often be called after that town. You're the sect of that town. So, what would be a couple of examples? Uh, the Lubavitchers. Chabad. Their rabbi was from a town, if I'm not mistaken, Lubavitch is a town I think in Poland or something. So anyway, this our, our movement, our rabbi Yeshua came from the town of Nazareth. Therefore, he was called a a Nozri, a Nazarite, a Nazarene, and we're his followers. So that's what we're called too. It's a very it's a very Jewish way of labeling a movement, and it's the way that we're labeled as uh, believers in Yeshua. There's another cool connection there because in Isaiah it talks about the branch and this branch theme is a messianic theme he's the one who will, who will like the, you know the, the tree of Jesse had been chopped off and there was just a stump left and the prophet says but there are gonna be shoot, there's going to be a shoot that comes up he's going to come up from that stump and he's going to be anointed and uh, of course that was Yeshua and uh, that term there one of the terms for branch is netzer can we all say netzer? So Yeshua is the netzer. He's the branch from Isaiah. And he's also from Nazareth, from Nazareth. So can you hear that connection in the early believers' minds? The branch from branch town. And we're, and we're his little branches branching off him because he's the vine and we're the little branches, right? So you can just tell like this was something that those early Jewish believers loved. Like they just gobbled this up, right? These connections, wow, this, this is what Yeshua is about. This is what we're about. Does this sound okay or am I like, do I sound like I'm shouting or something? I'm okay? Okay. Yeah. So also in 4 verse 10, they also call him the Nazarene. Now, several chapters later, Paul is accused of being a ringleader a pesky ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. There was this sect in the Jewish world and they believed that Yeshua was the Messiah and Paul was one of their ringleaders and uh, they were called the Nazarenes. So this was the common term. Today, the Hebrew term for Christians, for all believers in Yeshua, is notzrim. Can we say notzrim? Anachnu notzrim. We are notzrim because we believe in the man who was the branch, who came from branch town, and we're all branching off from him. We're no extreme. The Arabic term in the Quran for Christians is the same thing. I don't remember how it is in Arabic. And also in Aramaic, that's the term. So, you know, in in, uh, all of these Middle Eastern languages, Christians are called Nazarenes. And uh, that's a closer connection to this uh, this chapter and this idea. Uh, Another Messianic title that I love in this passage is Three verse fourteen, they say, but you disown the holy one and the righteous one. So we, uh, Yeshua here is called Hakadosh, which is an in-your-face title because we know who Hakadosh is. Blessed is He. Uh, one of the traditional terms for the holy one is Hakadosh, the holy one. Baruchu, blessed is He. Uh, that's one of the most popular terms for God in uh, Jewish literature from that time, they call him, the Holy One, blessed be he. HaKadosh Baruch And here, the emissaries are calling Yeshua, HaKadosh. We also call him, the Righteous One. I love that term in Hebrew, it's the Tzadik. Everybody say Tzaddik. I mean, if, if we come from, a Christian tradition, like, we don't, we don't generally, call someone like, yeah, that guy's really righteous. Like, you know, it's, it's it, it's true that you know people are righteous and we do value that, but it's not something that we like look up at with awe. Like people, a righteous man doesn't take on the same legendary proportions that he does in Judaism. In Judaism, like a tzaddik, a righteous person, he's like the hero of the Jewish faith. He is he is the legend of the Jewish community. Right, um, the tzaddik is like the guy who gets his prayers answered. He's the guy who's like this. With the Almighty. He's so close. Uh, he's the guy who would go and like, he could kill people. Um, he, he's, in Hasidic Judaism, like in, in, uh, in the last several centuries, they have a tradition of, uh, like, if you want to be close to God, you need to find a tzaddik who's close to God and get close to him. And he'll, he'll help you get close to God. And uh, that's true, actually. But you can't just go to any tzaddik. If you want to get close to the Almighty, you go to Yeshua, the ultimate Sadiq, the, the, the ultimate righteous one. And he is the one who brings you close to the Almighty. So you can just see, like, the, uh, the, their, their time clock in this chapter and the times they're using for Yeshua. They're so Jewish. Like, it's almost like you, just, you don't catch the smash of it unless you, you, you read it in that Jewish context. Uh, moving on, uh, along the lines of traditional Jewish prayer, in 3.16... 16, it says, the faith which comes through Yeshua has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And we are see another term, this perfect health. Can any does anyone know what it is in Hebrew? It's, it's, it's one of the phrases in the traditional prayers that's prayed for. It's like perfect healing, complete health. Rifuah shlemah. <inaudible> Can we all say Rifuah Shleima? <inaudible> <inaudible> you know, like uh Yahweh Rafa Yahweh our healer right so there's that root Rafa and you can hear it in Rafa healing and uh, so Rafua is healing and Shlema Rafua Shlema what does Shlema mean? yes that's right wholeness completeness Shalom means wholeness completeness and here we have Rafa So it's a like a whole healing. It's a complete health. And uh, apparently, this this thing that is prayed for every day by like observant Jews, this thing is answered through Yeshua the Messiah, through the faith that comes through Him. Wow! See, we're learning from this. We're learning from Acts three right now how to present the good news to Jewish people, how to explain Yeshua in a way that will actually be meaningful to Israel. And I think that's important because. We're getting geared up for that. We're in training right now. The Father, I believe that when, when, when the body of Messiah is ready, the Father is going to start bringing so many Jewish people to the body of Messiah so that we can accurately share the gospel with them and represent Mashiach to them. So that's why I'm keying in on this right now. We can view it as, as part of our training. Uh, 3.18, Yeshua's Apostles mentioned... That all of the prophets, they all foretold something. They all foretold that his Christ, his anointed one, would suffer. It's probably one of those catch-22s where they're like, I memorized the whole Torah. I grew up reading the Bible all the time, and I never realized it. All of a sudden, they were like, after the event of Yeshua's suffering and his death, they realized, oh, the Mashiach had to suffer. His anointed one had to die. And then he had to be raised from the dead in glory. So you can tell, like, this is, this is hot off the press, hey? Eh? And uh, traditional Judaism has wrestled with this concept, too. You know, um, the sages have read the passages, and they, they read the Psalms about, from David, and they, they, they conclude, you know, the, the Messiah, he's going he's gonna to suffer immensely. He's going to be rejected just like David. Uh, Joseph, in the book of Genesis... He was rejected by his brothers. He, is, he suffered immensely. But he went on to be a very powerful individual. And he went on to rescue his whole family from existential disaster. And so the sages read these passages. And what's their conclusion? There must be... The Messiah, he's going to have to suffer. He's going to have to die. But how can the Messiah die? There must be two Messiahs. That's the... That's the most popular Jewish conclusion. There must be two messiahs coming. One is going to be the son of Joseph, ben Yosef. And Mashiach ben Yosef, he's going to be the messiah that suffers. He's going to be the suffering servant. He's going to be the one that dies. And then messiah son of David, he's going to be the conquering king. He's going to be the one who leads us to military victory and establishes Israel as a sovereign state, uh, maybe as a world superpower uh, those types of dynamics. You know, gets that, fills Israel to that 600 million ideal population mark we talked about. Th- this is the conclusion in traditional Judaism. Now, let me ask you, are there two Messiahs who are coming? Or is there one Messiah who is going to have two comings? Maybe Yeshua coming is coming as Mashiach ben Yosef, the suffering servant the first time to be rejected and to die. And the second time around, he will come as Mashiach ben David. Messiah son of David the king who is going to rule with an iron scepter who is not going to tolerate unrighteousness who is going to implement justice on an international scale yeah yeah that's, what, that's the way things are going here and the coolest thing about the traditional Jewish understanding of Messiah is they say Messiah son of Joseph isn't going to stay dead because we understand from the Tanakh that he has to be raised from the dead so Messiah, son of David, is going to come and he's going to raise Messiah, son of Joseph, from the dead. Now, we know that's not exactly the case, right? This is Orthodox Jewish understanding, messiology. So even in the Orthodox Jewish understanding, the Messiah has to suffer, he has to die, he has to be raised from the dead. Now, is, is it too much of a stretch to say, well, yeah, I believe that Yeshua was that Messiah, but he's coming back as Messiah, son of David. And it wasn't Messiah Son of David who raised Messiah Son of Joseph from the dead. It was the Father who raised His Son from the dead. That is our faith. Hopefully that can be something that can help equip us also in explaining what we believe about Yeshua. You know, like if you approach a Jewish person or you start talking about your faith and you're like, yeah, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? It's like automatic disconnect, right? It's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. this Christ thing that's a very Gentile term right but if you say yeah like okay you know Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David well I believe that Yeshua whose adopted father's name happened to be Joseph he was actually Yeshua ben Yosef I believe that he's Messiah son of Joseph but I also believe that he's Messiah son of David and he's going to come back to answer the traditional prayers of the Jewish people and uh, and bring about all those prophecies for Israel yeah that's good news that's good news for Israel Greg, were you going to say something? Oh, okay. I like how we have that. <laughs> right on. Okay. Um, 3 11. I think it is no story. 3 verse 21. It says that Yeshua, heaven has received Yeshua, the anointed one appointed for Israel, until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So. Yeshua is in in Shemaim, in the heavens, and He's going to be there until a period of time comes called the Restoration of All Things. And there's some divergence of opinion about what the Hebrew term is there. I'll give you both of them, because it's cool. Uh, In the traditional Jewish understanding, our mission in this world is called Tikkun Olam. Can we all say Tikkun Olam? The Olam is the world, the universe. And Tikkun is like healing, or repairing, fixing. So in the traditional Jewish understanding, we are co-workers with the Almighty healing the world, fixing up the universe. You know, it kind of had a breakdown when Adam and Eve sinned. And since then, there's been this universe, like a home renovation project on a universal scale, right? And uh, through our faith, through our our responsive faith to to Yahweh, through our prayer, we are able to be co-workers with Him in seeing His glory restored to this world and seeing healing come to the nations and seeing healing come to like the cosmos on an atomic level. That is what your faith does. That's the traditional Jewish understanding. And you could, you could understand this as the same idea. Uh, Yeshua is going to come in conjunction with that period of time, the restoration of all things. Let's say that in Hebrew, the ti, the, like the, the period of the tikkun of all things. There's going to be a period of tikkun olam, where Yeshua comes to bring that final healing to the world and to his people wow hey and then there's another word the other word means like to return to an original state to repent what that could tell us is that in conjunction with right around when Yeshua is coming back there's going to be a massive move of God where his people return to the ancient paths where we come back from where we came so you know if people talk about the Torah and they say oh you know we left the Torah you're going back to that that tells us something we left it we weren't supposed to leave it. We want to go back to it. We don't want to go back to legalism. We're not going back under legalism, right? But we are returning to the Torah, to the ancient paths, to the lifestyle the Yeshua modeled for us. This is the restoration of all things. And it has to happen before he comes back. So for those of us who are into this Hebrew roots thing, or, uh, you know, we're messianic or whatever, you are cutting edge. You are part of what I believe is going to be the final move of God before the return of Messiah because this is restoration on a huge scale that has not happened in the body of Christ since like the two and 300s. Wow. That's exciting. Okay, 326. I'm going to teach you something about how to pray for somebody. Okay, you know, pop phrase, God bless America, right? I don't know. People don't say God bless Canada up here, do we? We don't have bumper stickers saying God bless Canada. It's a little different in Canada. But, uh, you know, there's this blessing thing. It's like the classic one-liner. If you're going to pray for someone, you pray that God would bless them, right? And then there's some other things we like to pray. But I, I, And sometimes I've been like, I don't know. Like, what if, what if someone is just living in horrible sin and they're like thumbing their nose against the Almighty and how they're, how they're doing their life and stuff. Like, I don't want to pray that God's going to bless them in that state. But uh, I want to give you a little tip. You can pray that He will bless them based on Acts verse. Acts 3.26. This is one way that he blesses us. Acts 3.26. For you first, Elohim raised up a servant and sent him to bless you. To bless you how? By turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So, you know, if there's some person and they're just living like the devil, you can. it's a powerful thing to say, Father, I pray that you would bless that person. Father, as a priest on this earth who has been invested with your authority, I bless that person in your name. Begin praying like that. And he will bless them the way he wants to. So if the biggest blessing he can do for that person is to turn them from their wicked ways, that's how he's going to bless them. Isn't that cool? So now you can pray that he'll bless people, and you'll know what, he's, you'll know what that means in your mind. <laughs> yeah. So that's a prayer tip. It's a great thing to pray for Israel too, when you pray for the Jewish people, when you pray for Israel. When you pray that Elohim will bless them, what you may be praying is, Father, turn them from their wicked ways. Turn them from being the nation that has the highest abortion rate per capita. Turn them from, like, the disgusting stuff they do in Tel Aviv. I'm not going to go into details. All that to say, when you pray that God will bless Israel, that's it, a pretty tall order, but He wants to do it. And it may result in a repentance movement amongst the Jewish people. So that's a tip for how to pray for Israel. Um, 4 verse 13, Acts four thirteen. Moving on, we uh, we read here. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John, and understood that indeed they had gone to seminary and uh, were accredited ministers with PhDs under their belt, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Yeshua. Yeah, these guys were like top of notch educated. I mean, these guys had plenty letters after their names with lots of dots in between them, right? Like, these guys, they had a mate. They were, they were super godly because they had... No, Is that, is that, is that what it says? Okay, I, I have to say, I want to say this. Like, I believe in education. I'm all for education. I, I do think that there's a place for um, education in terms of people preparing for, uh, you know, leadership in the kingdom and stuff like that. But it just doesn't say that, does it? What we, what we see is that there was a religious set up, system set up in Israel where men who felt called didn't go to the Almighty and sit under His teaching and go through the training that only He can give a person, which breaks a man very deeply, which humbles him. The system in that time was you, you go and you learn from a, from someone who learned from someone else who learned from someone else. And then you get you get Micha like you get your ordination from them. And then you're accredited to teach the Torah. Because you're the, the son, rabbinically speaking, of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, who's the son of so-and-so, who goes all the way back to Moses. And uh, uh, Yeshua, he wasn't a part of that system. Uh, the disciples he called, they weren't part of that either. And I suggest to you, maybe Yeshua has a different way of raising up leadership in the kingdom than the, the world's way, or even the traditional Jewish way 2,000 years ago. Could it be? there's some similarities, right? I I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm slamming anything because I'm not. I'm just saying, when it comes to training leaders in the Messianic Jewish movement, this is an area that needs ongoing dialogue, that we need to be really intentional about um, so that we can grow as a movement, so that when we have, let's say, young men who feel a call from God to serve Him full time, that there's something they can do instead of just... Floundering or feeling lost or going to a seminary where they have their love for the Torah taught right out of them. Um, Things like that. I have friends who have been through seminary and they said, you know, there's some good things to seminary and there's some bad things too. I have friends who, they they went through seminary and most of of the people that they graduated with are now burnt out. They're not in ministry anymore. Many of them are divorced. Um, Sadly, this can sometimes be the aftermath of a seminary education which is supposed to prepare a young man of God to minister for God. And, and sadly, sometimes it doesn't happen. So anyway, what we see with this is the key is being with the Master, isn't it? These guys, they didn't have any degrees. They had no academic credentials. They were not ordained from the rabbinical institutes in Jerusalem. But what did they have under their belt? They had logged hours and hours of personal, one-on-one time with Yeshua. And that's what's available to us too. And that's what's going to do it. Hopefully that is what will be recognizable in each of our lives. You know, wouldn't it be cool if people are like, you know what, Yeah, I just, uh, I just met Greg the other day, and I can tell this guy spends time with the Master. Like this guy, he's been with Yeshua, I can tell. Like Yeshua's rubbed off all over this guy, you know? I, when, I, when I'm around Greg, I just, I feel like I'm around Yeshua. You know what I mean? Like that's the kind of sense, right? That's, that's, the, uh, that's the goal of discipleship. And uh, that's an area we're going to continue to grow in. Um, chapter 5 of the book of Acts kind of blows the dispensational idea that the Old Testament was when God operated on the basis of law and he punished people who disobeyed and you know, maybe he was a little angrier in the Old Testament and maybe even killed people, but he would never do that in the New Testament because and it's the dispensation of grace and it's the church age and it's all grace. Uh, Acts 5 blows that theology out of the water. Acts five is the chapter where God kills two people for being fake with Him. Wow, like this is the New Testament here. This is quote the Church Age. This is like when grace was around, right? If we want to look at things through a dispensational lens, and uh, what we learn from this is the Almighty hasn't changed. Here in Israel, He is one. He's one and the same. His, his justice is still the same. His his, his mercy is still the same. His grace has always been around. And uh, sometimes people pray, you know, that, that God would come, that He would come in His glory, and that he, would, that, he would, uh, that he would visit us as His people. And I agree with that prayer, but I don't think we always realize what we're asking for or what we're going to get ourselves into. Like, can you imagine if people with hidden sin in their lives dropped dead in church? Or if you had an apostle confront somebody because they were hypocrites and they were faking it and the, and, the, and the person dropped dead on the spot. I mean, wow, that would kind of ruin your day, hey? Or maybe it would just like, man, everybody would freak out. You'd, call the, you'd probably call the ambulance or whatever. I mean, wow. But like, this is a picture of what happens when Yahweh dwells in the midst of His people. And I believe that He is restoring us to the ancient paths. He is bringing us back to a life of observance. Not legalistic observance, but love-based observance. An observance that comes from devotion to Mashiach. He's bringing us back to obedience so that when He does come in His glory, we'll have the lowest casualty rate possible. Yeah, that's the idea. And I'm thankful for that. I want to go along with that process. You know, I, I don't want any of us dying in the future when He really, really, when he really comes in His glory. I want to survive. So, that's, that's the message from Acts chapter 5. Um, in Acts 5 verse 16, we read something interesting. It says, uh, Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of, of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and most of them were being healed, but to some the apostles said, God doesn't want to heal you right now. It just isn't the will of God to heal you. Yeah. Oh, uh, is that what it says? I'm like, really? Yes, it says, they were all being healed. You know, sometimes, sometimes we always preface our prayers for healing by saying, God, if it be thy will, I pray that you would heal this person. And when we read the account in the Gospels and Acts, there was never a person who came to Yeshua and was turned away, not healed. Every single person who came to him, he healed. Now we don't have Yeshua here in the flesh. There isn't like massive spiritual power pouring through through him in the same way, maybe. So I mean, you know, maybe it takes time sometimes, or there's a time delay. I don't know. But just what I see from that is, it is God's will to heal people. They were all being healed. Wow, isn't that great? Oh, yeah. Maybe we should try that. If one of us are sick, we'll like we'll put the person outside in the sunshine and then we'll do the shadow casting ceremony and we'll we'll walk by so our shadow falls on him. Maybe if we did that in faith. Yeah. Good point, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So another example the leper. He came to the master. What did he say? He said, Master, if it be thy will, if you're willing. You can cleanse me, and what was Yeshua's response? Immediately, he reached out to him and he said, "I am willing. Be cleansed. I am willing. Be healed." So, we can hear him saying that today in each of our lives. I am willing. Be healed. Be cleansed. Um, Five thirty-one. I want to give you another key, strategic key for praying for Israel, for the Jewish people. It says he is the one, referring to the to Yeshua whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So let me ask you, how does Israel repent? Yeshua grants repentance. Wow. So, one strategic way that we can be praying for the broader Jewish community that we are a part of, excuse me, <laughs> is... Um, We can be praying that he will grant repentance to Israel. Repentance precedes forgiveness of sins. Repentance precedes Hamas being routed and permanently removed from the face of the earth. Repentance precedes all of Israel's problems being solved. Right? It's 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 almost like it's the root when Israel repents everything's going to be okay. If Israel doesn't repent, it doesn't matter how much we pray for them, it doesn't matter how big their military is, it doesn't matter how much money is poured into the country, they will still fail, because the Torah says that they will fail. If, we, if, we're, if we're not true to the covenant as a nation, then we get the curses, and there are very long lists of curses. But if we repent and we return to Him, and we listen to His voice, then there are blessings. So that's how we can be praying for the Jewish people For repentance That's like the fountainhead How does that sound? So praying for repentance And what was the other thing? We talked about it a little earlier But there was another one Praying what? Yes Right, right They're connected, aren't they? turning from the evil ways because he blesses. Greg? I think we need to pray for them mm-hmm. to first right. turn to draw out who is a part of it. Yeah. And that Hebrew word repentance. Mm. Wow. That's true. And I mean returning and repentance in Hebrew are synonymous terms. Actually, he just reminded me, I'm going to share a verse of this. If you want to turn to Lamentations, let's look at a verse in Lamentations. This is a bonus I'm just throwing in. Um, As you know, the 9th of August, the 9th day of the 5th month was this last week. It's the exact day when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and the 2nd temple was destroyed by the Romans. Um, of course there was massive slaughter of people that accompanied it. It was a disaster. Almost unprecedented. And uh, the book of, of Aphel, the book of Lamentations is read on the ninth of Av, the ninth of the sixth month. So observant Jews were fasting during for this whole day um, doing extra praying and Oh, yeah, sorry, Genevieve. I think I saw the number 6 when I was looking up Lamentations. I know what Lamentations is in the Jewish Bible, but I don't know where it is in the Christian Bible. That's in page 60. Yeah, right. Okay, I found it. Lamentations. Yeah. Um. Okay, the last verse in Lamentations, it says, oh, sorry, the second last verse, Return us to you, Yahweh, that we may be returned. We knew our days as a yeah. yeah, exactly what you said. Like we can't even turn of our own volition. He returns this to him so that we can return. That's another great thing to pray, isn't it? That's true. each like uh uh when first child that. hmm Yeah, that's a good point I know I know the fast was acknowledged in the book of Zechariah along with the three other traditional Jewish fasts and he didn't say don't fast he just said I'm going to turn those days in the future into days of joy and, and gladness but that's a good point it's not like you can fast to undo something that's happened in the past I think it's an expression of mourning um you know maybe like the may we never forget concept maybe it's a day to pray for the rebuilding of the temple too um I mean, you know, on, on a spiritual, strategic level, that's the worst day on the calendar. That is a day to be on high alert, to be extra, extra, like, ca- conscious through fasting and stuff, maybe. Yeah. yeah, Right, it's like, hey, we're beginning to clue in. Disasters always happen on this day. Maybe we should fast on this day <laughs> and, uh, and pray for His mercy, hey? That could be, yep. Okay, one last verse in the book of Acts. Isn't this rich? Oh, I love Acts. Uh, five. <laughs> what Shoshana said, and that he would bless the broader Jewish community by turning us from our wicked ways. And they're connected, aren't they? Um, 5.32, it talks about Oh. This is like, this is a shot. They took a shot at the Sanhedrin here. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. So you can hear what they're saying, right? They're saying, He's given us the Holy Spirit and He has not given you the Holy Spirit because you are being disobedient. And uh, that that was like the final breaking point for them. That's the point where they kind of Freaked out, it looks like. And they wanted to kill the apostles. And then Gamaliel intervened, thankfully. But, uh... Did you notice that? Who does he give the Holy Spirit to? I I want... Of the fullness... Of the Holy Spirit, like, flowing through me. And operative in my life. Like, I've never... I've never raised someone from the dead, even. That's stuff that the Master did regularly. He said we would do even greater things than that. And... I know it's there. I know that there's a level that can be lived on like that. And it happens when the Holy Spirit is just... You know, the Ruach HaKodesh is like so flowing through a person. And so I I think about this, right? And I see this key. It's it's a... Yes, it is faith-based, right? We receive the gift based on faith. But it also says those who obey Him. (laughs) And, hey, that's an area where we can all grow, isn't it? That's an area where I can grow. In my observance of the Torah... I've I've been really coming to realize in the last year, there are areas where I I can get sloppy because I've been doing this thing for a while. I can begin to kind of just do it as a matter of routine. Uh, You know, I can put my tzitzit on in the morning and not even think about why I'm doing it. And I think that's missing the point. I think it is. Maybe, so, you know, this whole obedience thing, this is something we're growing in. And maybe that's also why this return the Torah, that's happening today in the body of Messiah, is so critical, because this is a vital component of obedience. I mean, you know, in uh, in the Torah, this Shabbat, we read about the big ten, the big ten, one of them is Shabbat, right? Most of us in the body of Christ, we don't take Shabbat very seriously anymore. It's, it's the way it is. I don't know, maybe that's disobedience. Maybe we would experience a greater, a freer flow of his Holy Spirit, and a greater degree of is power operative in our lives if we just started doing Shabbat maybe we would just be aligning ourselves spiritually for that to just come through us you know I, I, I guess we're an experiment I guess we'll see if that happens as a movement I guess we'll see if that happens but I, I suspect and I think I have reasonable grounds to suspect it that that may be the case so let's continue to grow in our obedience as we grow in our obedience we'll also be growing in the power of the Holy Spirit and in that life flow wow um, in Hebrew do you know what the Hebrew term is for obeying him? in Hebrew it's like lishmoabakolo to listen to his voice that's the Hebrew term for obeying so you know a child obeying a parent what's the, what does that literally mean in Hebrew? the child listening to the voice of the parent so they're saying Elohim gives the Ruach kodesh. To those who Shema, to his voice. That Hebrew term Shema means? Listen, that's right. So, having said that, let's look at the Torah. Because this is the passage where we get to read the Shema. I'm like... And it says when we listen to His commands, when we shammah to them, eh? I don't know, like, I'm a prairie boy, right? I, I didn't actually get to see much of the ocean for a long time. But when I did, I realized, oh, I mean, sometimes the waves are peaceful and they lap on the beach, but man, sometimes they're like smashers, hey? Eh? Maybe, maybe, uh, I wonder if it has that connotation too. Just that, like, uh, relentless, like, powerful dynamic that comes with righteousness? Mm, maybe. Yeah. Well, let's look at Deuteronomy together. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, study it. See see what every one of the, you know, whether it's a festival, whether it's any of these things. And she agreed with that. She agreed mm. with the spiritual application. That's why heard really and so I encouraged her to study these things. And I think, too, if you can begin to study it and see how real it is, and then if you have to set that to be responsible to do it Yeah. Like, uh, the spirit of the law, hey? Eh? Even when you begin to understand the spirit of the the commandment. Huh. Wow. Maybe we can do that too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's almost easy, you know, when you do come from an observant perspective, it is almost easy to just say, okay, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. But maybe that's missing the point, hey? Like, thinking about why did he say to do this? What does this mean, you know? Huh. That inspires me, actually. I want to do more of that. Mm. Right? Yeah, even just starting to read the Old Testament, that's a good step, isn't it? <laughs> Maybe they're all connected. Hey, <laughs> okay, um, this Hebrew verb "shema" that means to listen, but it means to listen obediently, right? Um, Moses actually uses it three times in this parsha. You, know, you can turn to like Deuteronomy 4, and we'll, uh, we'll look around you. Uh, in 4, Deuteronomy 4:1, Deuteronomy 5:1. And in Deuteronomy 6.4, Moses says, "Shema Israel, listen, Israel." And then he says, his uh, like, Devar Torah, his his uh, his prophecy and stuff. Um, let's look at the Shema first. I think it's first in so many of our hearts. Deuteronomy chapter six verse four: Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one, and you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. And with all your soul and with all your might. And then he goes on to say some things about these words, about the Shema, about the Ten Commandments, and that we're going to look at that in a second. But I wanted to just share with you a couple deeper insights into the Shema, into this passage. Yeshua said, of course, it was the greatest commandment in Mark chapter twelve. Uh, in Matthew and Luke it only has him it only records the second half of his quote, but the book of Mark records the whole thing, the hero Israel part. So, firstly, who is the greatest commandment addressed to? To Israel, hear, O Israel, is so. If we as believers uh, believe that the greatest commandment applies to us, what does that say about our identity? You must be part of Israel. If Yahweh is your God, you must be part of Israel. One God in the heavens, one people on the earth. Echad. Echad uh, Let's look a little further Did you notice There are two verbs in this passage The second one is to love him And that's the one that we're, we're really big on today Right But what's the first one To listen Shema Listen And then Ahava Love And I think this is very true on relational levels Like between us as people too I think this is true in a marriage I can't really love Genevieve unless I listen to her. I can't really act in loving ways to her unless I actually hear what she's thinking about or what she likes. Maybe she likes it if I put the toilet paper roll on so it goes backwards or if I leave the toilet seat up. Or maybe the opposite. Yeah, the opposite. See, I've been listening. I know this. <laughs> right? So I can't, I can't act in loving ways to my wife unless I like, spend time talking with her and uh, get to know her, and to, and let's say Shema to her, right? And that's very true of our relationship to Yeshua, our our Messianic Bridegroom. Also, we can't love the Master if we don't know him. We can't like speak his love language and do the stuff that he likes unless we spend time with him, study his word, do things like that. So uh, that's that's the first that's the first insight into the Shema that really jumped out at me. Uh, The second one is something that you would have to read in the Hebrew to understand. Everywhere in the Hebrew where it says, you shall this, like the ahavta, and you shall love, for instance, you can read that in one of two ways. And they're both true. One of them is, you are to do this. And it's more like an imperative, right? It's a command. However, the way it's phrased also, and I think more literally means, Like, it's just stating the way things are going to happen, what you are going to do, right? So, I don't know about you, but some days I do not love God. I do not feel like I love God at all. Sometimes I wrestle with questions. Sometimes maybe I'm just feeling not good inside for whatever reasons, or we all have our times when we disconnect, right? For me, it's especially in the morning. I feel so groggy when I get up sometimes. I'm like, I feel so far from God right now, and I don't know if I love him at all, right? (laughs) Okay, but here's the thing. Like, at times like that, when I know he said to say the Shema, I'll say the Shema with Genevieve and I'll pray in the morning when the feelings aren't there. But instead of taking the Shema as an imperative, you shall love him, I'm like, I can't do that. It's not like I can work myself up emotionally to the point where I, quote, love him. This is only something that he can do in my life. There is a fire. And it is the fire of love. And it is the fire that we read about in the Song of Songs. And it's the fire... Who is God? We read several times in this parsha, He is the consuming fire. And He is the fire, the fire of love, of whom it's said that we'll be immersed into in the new covenant. Yeshua will immerse us into the, His fire. That sounds kind of scary. I don't want to burn up. But you need to read the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, to understand what fire that is. It's the fire of His love. And so we can read the Shema. From a gospel perspective, as a promise, that, you know, I might be spiritually dead, I might feel so cold-hearted today, I might just feel gross inside, and I don't even want to think about, about God. But you know what? The gospel, according to the Shema, is that He will inspire that love in my heart if I let Him. He will ignite the fire of His love in my heart if I take Him at His word in faith. That's the gospel. Wow. So, you know, there's some mornings when we'll say the Shema... And I was like, I am not feeling this, but... And those are the mornings when I'll just thank him for the gospel. I'll thank him that he came to bring my heart to life. I'll thank him that he came to ignite the fire in my heart. And uh, things, things actually begin to look up after that. And it helps me remember that he's the mover and the shaker in uh, this, this, uh, this big plan. Yeah. So, um, another thing that we see in the Shema, and this also applies in interpersonal relationships... Does loving Him start with the mind? Does loving Him start with our physical actions? No. Loving Him doesn't start on, like, this level. Loving Him, that's like hands and feet, right? Action and stuff. (laughs) Loving Him doesn't start on this level. Loving Him starts on this level. If this isn't here, then, like, the whole thing is sunk, right? And uh, that's sometimes hard. Because, like, we live in a world where there's evil where we have all been hurt at some point in our lives, some of us very deeply, where we have been severely tempted to lose heart, to get discouraged, to just check out emotionally, to give up inside, to just start going through life, doing the motions and just surviving. See, the problem though is when we go along with that way of thinking, and I think we've all been tempted at times to do that, I know I have, we can't love Him with all our heart anymore. Because we're not in touch with their heart. Maybe that's the gospel too. That Yeshua came to heal our hearts, that He came to bring our hearts to life, that He came to fill our hearts with His love so that we can actually love Him with our hearts, with all of our hearts. Wow, that's the gospel. When we receive Mashiach, we are on our way to having a heart that is full of love. And I, I don't know, I'll, I'll, here's an example. Um, I've been around a couple people, like a couple guys before they're married, when they're really in love with a girl. Maybe they're like courting or maybe they're betrothed or something. And you can just tell like they're different. You can tell they're in love. And I'm not referring specifically to you here, Colin, just so you know. I'm thinking there's one guy in Israel specifically that I'm thinking of. And he was like, he was engaged and he was going to be married soon. And he was so happy. We were working together. In some agricultural stuff, and he would just look at me with love in his eyes, right? Like I was like, he's totally not seeing me right now. He's seeing the girl he's gonna marry. He's totally not talking to me. We were just talking about mechanical stuff, right? How to do something on the farm, and he was like saying it so affectionately, and I was like, this is kind of weird. (laughs) But I know it's just because like he was he was so in love. But that's the way it is on inner spiritual lives too. Like when we're in love with Yeshua. It's just going to get all over everybody else we come in contact with. We're going to look at everybody through those eyes of love, right? And uh, maybe that is a little bit about you too, Colin. You're, you're pretty happy right now. I, I like that. We're all really happy about that. Yeah, I want to celebrate that too. But you don't look at me and like, with that much love in your eyes or like, talk to me in really affectionate ways yet. You've never called me honey or anything. Okay. Um, anyway, so those are a couple of things in the Shema that I really appreciate. Um, another theme that jumps out at me over and over in this passage is the theme of study. Um, what's the Hebrew word for disciples? Talmidim. Yeah, it's correct. Uh, Mike, you're a talmid. We are talmidim, plural. Hmm? Yeah. Shoshana's is a talmidah. That's the female case. So um, what's the root word of Talmid, the root word of disciple? It's Lamad. Can we all say Lamad? The word, uh, there's actually a letter in the Hebrew, Aleph Bet, that's called Lamed, and it's the same root. A Lamed is like a big letter. Um, here, I'll draw it with my hand, my finger, just so you can see it, right? See, it's like way up here above the line, and it goes down to the right, and then under like that right and i mean you i think you all know hebrew so you know what i'm talking about right but lamad is a picture of an ox goad like if something that you would poke an ox with and kind of guide him along right it has the idea of direction discipline and this is the root word of us as disciples this is the root of learning of lamading so when moses says over and over, over again that when it comes to the word of god there's this element of active learning We learn something from it. Like, okay, number one, it doesn't just happen overnight. Discipleship doesn't just happen overnight. It is a lifelong process of learning. Uh, If we just, like, become disciples and keep doing life as usual and we don't, like, block... Time out of our schedules to study the word, if we don't prioritize like group study like this, also, we're not going to get much lamodding done. We're not going to be like very high quality deem disciples, right? So, what we see here is just there's, a, there's such an element in the Torah, in the life of discipleship, of learning, uh, of study. And I mean, you know, study can be hard, it can be mentally exertive, can't it? So, on the one hand, we have like Peter and John, who it says were uneducated and untrained men, rabbinically speaking, on an academic level. On the other hand, these men were Torah scholars of a very high caliber. These men were men who, who studied the Torah regularly, who went deep in the Word. And uh, what great examples for us, too. Yeah. Um, let's look at the couple of verses after the Shema. It says, it says what to do with the Shema says, uh, these, these words I'm, uh, I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. So we learn, when it, when it comes to Torah study, you know, engaging on a heart level is the first element, right? Making it personal. We've been talking about that for the last couple weeks. Uh, then it says, teach them, to your, teach them to your sons. Teach them diligently. And, uh, and talk about them. Like, you know, when you're sitting at home having breakfast, or when you're all around the supper table, talk about these things, the Torah um, you know, when you're driving on your, in your car to work or to congregation, or you're on a road trip, talk about the Torah. You know, when you get up in the morning, talk about the Torah. When you go to bed at night, talk about the Torah. Like, let this stuff be in your mouth. And uh, you know, we could we could understand this in one of two levels. Number one, it could just be talking about the Shema, and that is a traditional Jewish understanding. What it literally means is like when you go to bed at night, say the Shema, quote the Master saying the greatest commandment. You know, when you get up in the morning, let the Shema be some of the first words off, off your lips. Uh, I don't know if you do that or not. If you do, wow, you've probably had the experience of what a great connection point it is with the Holy One. If you haven't, I, I highly recommend it. You know, when you wake up in the morning, don't just like jump into your day and go for it. Um, before you even go for the coffee pot, stop and say the Shema. That's a real connection. Um, that's a real energy source. And... Uh, I think that's what it's talking about, you know. Genevieve and I do that, and we found it's it's great for our relationship too, because it gives us regular points where we stop, and we we say the shema, and we don't just say it; we pray together, right? And maybe we'll exchange some words of Torah. So we'll talk about we'll talk about the word and stuff. So you know, saying the shema is great on so many levels. Highly recommended. Um, it goes on to say, actually, like write these things on the doorposts of your house. Like, bind them as a sign on your arm and on your, on your forehead between your eyes. And, uh, you know, the temptation is to look at this and say, well, he couldn't be... This couldn't be literal. Like, he, could not talk, he couldn't be saying to actually write this stuff on the doorposts of my house. To actually, like, tie this stuff on, these things on my body. Could he? But we discover that in Yeshua's time... It was taken literally. These were things that were actually done. Um, And I believe that the Master did these things too. Why? Because uh, when he talked to the Pharisees about binding tefillin, about their phylacteries, he didn't say, man, you guys got it totally wrong. Like, this was supposed to be an allegorical, right? And you guys are taking it way too literally. You crazy Pharisees. He just said, you guys make them, like, you you make your tefillin honking big so you can get attention and people can think you're so righteous. He just, he, 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 uh, he criticized their motives, right? So, I have a set of phylacteries, a set of tefillin. I, I, try, and, I try and get them on once a week to pray and read the word. Um, there's one more place where it talks about them in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to bring them and do a live demo for you. I think, I think you'll think it's cool. Um, maybe some of you have seen them before, I don't know. So that's a, that's a trailer to look forward to. I'm going to go till 12.30, is that okay? No? Yeah? Okay. We're not going to Saskatoon this afternoon, so it's... Kind of nice, feel a little more relaxed. Yeah. So, anyway, the thing on the doorpost, that's called a mezuzah. Doorpost in Hebrew is mezuzah. And uh, the thing, the, the, tying them is a sign, the scripture boxes. And uh, in, in the Torah, those are called totifot. There's a totefit for your head, there's a totefit for your bicep. Uh, the popular Jewish term that's used today is tefillin. Can we all say tefillin? Yeah. So, um,. Deuteronomy three twenty-four. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna highlight a couple of things in this passage that I think can enhance our discipleship that are relevant to us as a movement. Uh, Deuteronomy 3, verse 24, we uh, we get to listen in to Moses praying. Like this is personal one-on-one prayer, right? And we get to listen in. And this is what he says. Oh, Master Yahweh, you've begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. And then he. He goes on. But uh, I just want to point out what he calls God. Uh, in the Hebrew it says, Adonai yod Adonai Yahweh. And uh, the Hebrew term there, Adonai, it means like my lord or my master, but it actually is in the plural. So it literally says, my lords or my masters. Okay, The singular is Adonai. Adonai is like my master. Adonai is my master's. It's interesting that Moses calls the Almighty in the plural. It might simply be because God, as Elohim, is in the plural. It just stands for him being like the intensification of all power, like consummate might. Uh, That's kind of the concept in Hebrew. But it is interesting. Um, In in modern Hebrew, if you say Adonai, if you call someone Adonai, that just means sir in modern Hebrew, right? So, like, you know, if you're. If, uh, let's say, you have a cashier who helps you, and you just say, thank you, sir. You say, thank you, know, thank you, Adonai. And you're not calling him your Lord, right? You're not calling him your Lord. You're just calling him sir. <laughs> you're not saying that he's the master of your life. You're calling him sir. Okay? So, um, the, term, the Hebrew term Adonai is a respectful term. Okay? It's a, it's, like a, it's a sign of respect. So, to call the Almighty Adonai, it is one of his titles. Uh, Abraham, it says, called the Almighty Adonai. Moses here does. He's called that in several of the books of the prophets uh, and in the Psalms. So uh, it's okay to call him Adonai. There's this crazy suggestion out there that the term Adonai is from like the Greek go- pagan god Adonis. Therefore, we shouldn't call him Adonai. But that isn't true. Moses called the Almighty Adonai. It's okay to call him that. So I, I have something to point out from this passage though. If we're like just in a traditional Christian church, if we are uh, traditional Messianic Jews and if we're people who are more into the sacred name dynamic, okay? So I think we, we have a little something here for everybody that we can learn from this. Firstly, we learn that God has a name. If we're in a traditional church, when we read our Bibles, it says the Lord everywhere, doesn't it? It doesn't have his name. But that doesn't work when you have the phrase Adonai Yahweh, because Adonai is translated as Lord, and Yahweh is translated as Lord. So you end up calling him the Lord, the Lord, Lord the Lord. It doesn't work, right? And so, I mean, translators bend over backwards and they do all sorts of translational, like, what do you call them? Like, gymnastics or something. What's that? Contortions. Translational con- contortions, right? Like in, in the NASB, for instance, this, uh, they render this as, O Lord God. So instead of saying Yahweh, it says God in all caps. Like, it's confusing. It is not user-friendly, right? This, this is a problem. So, you know, the first thing we can see in here is God has a name and his people, historically, have called him by name. He, in fact, it says, who is a nation, who, like what nation has a God who's so close to him as, as us, whenever we call on him? talks about the patriarchs calling on his name, right? So that's the first thing that we can learn. Uh, if we're coming from a traditional Jewish perspective, then we would never pronounce the name of God, even though halachically you are allowed to use it on Yom Kippur. Uh, we would just say Hashem if we're talking about Him, or we would say Adonai in prayer instead of actually saying His name. But what we see here is Moses and others like Abraham, they used God's name in prayer. And you know what? If it's good enough for Moses who gave the Torah, it's good enough for me. Heaven forbid that I would be someone who, you know, takes away from the Torah or adds to it. It's one of those no-nos he specifies in this parsha. And uh, for those of us who are more, like, okay, I use the name of God, but I hesitate to, uh, like, associate myself in any way with like the sacred name label because oh, there are so many crazy, freaky things out there under the sacred name label. Like, there's some real extremes. People who say, you know, if you were baptized in the name of, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that wasn't legitimate. You're not saved. Or uh, you know, if you uh, if you uh, if you call in the name of Jesus for salvation, that, that's a pagan god, and you know, you're not calling on the one true name of... And then, of course, at that point, it's like, well, what is his one true name? And there's this big argument in the extreme sectors of the sacred name movement about how to say his name. It's like, well, maybe it's Yahushua or Yahoshua, or uh, Yahoshua, or, Yehoshua, or uh, <laughs> like, it goes on and on, right? And it's just this massive mess. And everybody claims that unless you call on his name the right way, then you're not saved and you're certainly not part of our righteous club. It's really weird. I don't know. If you, just, if you really want to get weirded up, out, get on the internet and check out some extremist sacred name sites. Okay? Um, anyway, I just want to point out here, though, that Moses did address the Almighty, not only by his name exclusively, but he also used titles. He did call him Adonai. Right? Um, I I find sometimes for those of us who, who, you know, who do cherish the use of the name of God in prayer, you know, like myself, sometimes we can be like, no, only his name. I'm only going to call him by his name. I'm never going to use any titles. And we end up like never calling him master, although we should because it's a respectful term. Uh, We never call him certain things, you know. So I encourage you, like in the midst of our our recovery of the use of his name, let's like, let's stay strong in the use of his titles too. They're rich. They're deep they're meaningful like let's call him the holy one the holy one of israel let's call him the the great i am let's call him father let's call him master let's call him the lord of the universe i mean let's not only call him by his name you know what i mean so yeah and also this is just a personal thing okay i'm going to share with you a little personal opinion um, when we're doing like tra- traditional Christian songs and stuff and they call him Lord, it's okay to call God Lord. He is the Lord. He's my Lord. Okay, it is an Old English term, right? It is a little out of date. Um, if you ask Joe on the street what Lord means, maybe he'll think of like seven lords a-leaping or something in tight pants or whatever, right? Like... It's an old term. But I mean, it's okay. This is my opinion. It's okay to call him Lord in contexts like that. I don't know. I, like, okay, here's my opinion. If we're singing traditional Christian psalms songs, I don't know, I'm okay with just calling him Lord and not like always putting his holy name there instead. It's almost kind of hard. Like when we're singing a traditional Christian song and half of us are singing Lord and half of us are singing God's name, it's like, I don't know what to sing. And it's like, it's confusing. <laughs> so anyway, that's just a little personal thing that I... I've been thinking about. <laughs> okay, um, wow, I'm out of time. Ah, is, don't you love this parsha? It is so rich. There's like so much meaty material in here. Here, I'll show you how much I got through. This is my first page of notes, and this is this is what I got through. And then here's my here's my second page that I didn't cover yet. <laughs> don't you love it? Maybe we should just do this parsha next week too. Anyway, um, you know what? I'm just going to shoot this off to you like in like, well, one-sentence summaries, okay, because it's so rich. Um, Moses said, I'm going to tell you a joke. Is that okay if I just like, summarize this for you? Moses said, "Don't add to it subtract from the word of God." So uh, here's the joke. Moses said that, So the uh, Jews went and multiplied, and the Christians divided. Jews are famous for big families, multiplication. Christians are famous for splitting into lots of denominations, right? So, in general, though, if you're from a Jewish background, your propensity will be to add to the Word of God. If you're from a Christian background, your propensity will be to subtract from the Word of God. It's almost, it's stereotypical, but it's true. So let's try and, like, avoid both extremes, right? Um, Moses says that our our wisdom and our understanding in the sight of the nations is our observance of the Torah, it's not intellectual pursuits it's not a bunch of head knowledge it's how you do your life it's applying the Torah to your lives that is the biblical definition of wisdom um, there's this interesting term where Moses literally says that the, the people were under the mountain ha'har, when they came into the covenant and there's this Jewish tradition that like he suspended the mountain over them and he threatened to drop it on them unless they said yes to his proposal it's like coercion I don't believe that's true. But that could, be a, that could be a clue of why Paul talked about being under the law. It's like an approach where you're forced to do Torah, where you are coerced into observance. We'll talk about that more when we go through Paul's letters. Um, the Ten Commandments in Hebrew is aseret devarim. Can we say that? Aseret devarim literally means the Ten Words. Uh, the traditional Jewish term is actually eser hadibrot. Can we all say eser hadibrot? Up. it says where, from whence he spoke he spoke from the fire what that tells us is when we experience that immersion into his fire in our lives that is the place from which we will hear his voice the people of Israel were freaking out because they thought it was going to kill them they were right actually the fire of Elohim will kill something inside of you it will kill your selfishness it will kill your ego it will kill the stuff in you that he doesn't like and that's a good thing so let's, let's go into His fire, even if it's painful. Let's listen to His voice there and, uh, and go through that process. It says whom He shows grace to. Yeah, He shows grace to everybody. He feeds the whole world, it's true. But specifically, it says that He shows chesed. He shows His grace and He guards His covenant with those who love Him and keep His commands. In, in Hebrew, it's like His lovers and guardians of His commands. So if we want to experience the fullness of His grace in our lives, if we want to experience Him just like showing that covenant devotion, that strong, that strong devotion, you know, there is that element of being His lover. There is that element of actually guarding His commands in personal observance. And that's where there's this level of grace that we won't otherwise experience. It says to do Shabbat. The other half is to work for six days. The Hebrew word there for work means serve also. And Mike and Shoshan, I thought of you too when I read that because you two are working hard right now. This is a season where you're working hard. And I want to encourage you. The Hebrew word there for work also means to serve. And it just reminds us that just as much as it's a mitzvah to rest on Shabbat, it's a mitzvah to serve him the other six days in, in the, the work that he's given us to do. And uh, you're, you're, you're serving him just as much at your, quote, secular jobs or whatever enterprises you have as you are when you, when you worship on Shabbat. So let's remember that. Serving him every day. Moses says over and over in this parsha, the Torah is good. The commandments are good. When we do them, it will go well for us. He wasn't lying. That didn't change when Yeshua came. How do I know that? Because Paul says in Romans seven, the law is good. The commandment is good. It's still true today. I don't care if Pop theology says doing Torah will is to your harm. It's gonna mess you up spiritually. It's gonna make you something you don't want to be. It's not true. The Torah is good. The commandment is good. And when we do them, it will go well for us. It's the promise of God. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute at HolyLanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.